Tomorrow is the center of a season of festivals, each festival calling us to rejoice, to be thankful, and to hope for peace. Or as the angels proclaimed in the Christmas story, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. But our modern relativistic culture has far too often robbed all of these festivals of the one ingredient that can restore and preserve their true meanings and bring by grace the peace of God's promises. Instead, we are too often left with festivals of rejoicing of a different color. Well, that's what we'll be discussing today on Deep in Scripture. Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, with Jim Anderson, my guest today. Good afternoon, everyone. Today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. And the reason is this is the day before Thanksgiving. And it seemed appropriate to address that. And I really couldn't think of a more appropriate verse than Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. Let me read that, and then we'll continue with our discussion. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jim, you and I are both, I was brought up Lutheran. I know you have some Lutheran backgrounds. I remember Mm -hmm. that verse 7 always from the Lutheran sermons when I grew up because that was the kind of the official benediction after the sermon. Yes. And I remember as a young man wondering the peace of God that passes all understanding. What does he mean? And we're going to look at that in just a moment. You thought it must pass all understanding because you didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. (laughs) Now, it's the day before Thanksgiving, and we are in the middle, if you will, mm-hmm. a season of Thanksgiving. This entire part of the year is full of seasons, the core of which is Thanksgiving. It begins with All Saints Day and All Souls Day, in which we're thankful to those who come before us and live the faith, fought the good fight. And so in our prayers for them and asking their intercession, it's a time of Thanksgiving. That's followed by this feast of Thanksgiving, the secular holiday in which we are reminded to be thankful for all that we have. And then we approach Advent, a time in which we examine our lives, examine our world and our future as we anticipate not only the first but the second coming of Christ, and we're thankful for that, for all that God has done for us. Then, of course, Christmas. We're thankful for God's love for us in sending his Son. Followed by New Year's, again, a secular holiday in which we are thankful for all that God has done in our life, that he's got us through this last year, and that we can enter the new year because of his grace. And then there's another holiday, Holy Day, right off the end of a New Year's, and that's Epiphany, in which we're thankful for the gospel that was proclaimed to to the ages and to the people all around the world. But too often, these holidays are celebrated without reference to their true meanings. In fact, every single one of them has a different understanding in our culture. The world has touched and corrupted practically each and every one. All Saints Day and All Souls Day has turned into a celebration of 
ugliness and wickedness in Halloween, which originally means All Hallows' Eve. That's what Halloween is. Few people know that in the common public. Thanksgiving has turned into eating too much and watching football. I must say, though, I saw a special on TV on Thanksgiving the other night, and even as late as the late 1600s, the preachers were were lamenting in New England that it had become a secular holiday. (laughs) Christmas... It's not, for many people, it's not a celebration of the incarnation, not even a celebration of giving. It's become a celebration of gimme, gimme, gimme. Yeah, a break from the normal flow. Of course, Advent before that is nothing but one long shopping spree. It's not yes. a preparation. And also, New Year's. Uh, you, you, you succumb to secularism there because New Year's Day is also a holy day. The feast of our Our Lady, Mother of God. Yep. So uh, you succumbed to secularism, Marcus, when you called it New Year's. Oh, there you go. You caught me. You're supposed to yeah. catch me before the program, though. Jim. Well, I must confess, as you were reading it, it's when it <laughs> dawned on me. And uh, we turn a celebration of of Our Lady into, uh, well, New Year's Day. It's um, getting over our hangover. An epiphany. What's epiphany? Yeah, most people just <laughs> skip it. Don't even think about it until maybe they walk into church on that Sunday, and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot all about that. Our culture, our relativistic culture, has has robbed this time of year from the meaning of these holidays, and 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 I do believe maybe the core need that makes these holidays have significance in our lives. Uh, many Christians refuse to celebrate any of these because of their pagan origins. Yes. Um, you know, All Saints Day is a a taking over of a pagan holiday, a supplanting it. It was a Celtic holiday of uh, the harvest, and it was the day that the dead would come back and visit the family, and the church said, oh no, we're over that. It's going to be a all-holy day, rather than fearing the dead, we're celebrating the joy of those who've come before us. And uh, Christmas, December 25th, is not, and the church never taught that it was literally Jesus's birthday. It was this feast of the Saturnalis. It was a pagan feast day of the Romans that the church did not compromise. The church supplanted, conquered, and took over. It wasn't a compromise with this pagan holiday. It was a premeditated supplanting of it. And there's a key point here that that Jim and I want to point out. As we approach Thanksgiving and Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, and that is that from the beginning, Christians have recognized that grace builds on nature. Mm -hmm. And that is a very important point. Parents, grace builds on nature. The point is that all people, every single human being that has ever lived, is living now and will ever live, they are created in the image of God with, as Pascal says, a God-shaped void. Every person was created to have a relationship with God, whether they know it or not. And in that sense, evangelization starts with discovering how God is already working in people's lives, 
whether it's the person next door, someone in our family, someone we work with, who don't seem to have any kind of relationship with God, if you desire to touch them for Jesus Christ, you begin by discovering how God is already loving them. Even though they don't know it or know God adequately, maybe they're caught up in some you know, inadequate religion of some sort, the truth is that their desire to know a God is the desire to know God, whether they know it or not. And then it becomes our desire in evangelization to look for ways to build on that, to clarify it, to correct their misunderstandings, and then convince them of the evidence of God's love in their lives. By doing this, we get one, we get their attention, and we also speak to them in a way that is relevant for them. Because if we start answering questions that they don't have questions about, it's going to pass right over their head. Right. They, we have to, to speak to them where they're at. Many times people committed to evangelization, committed to Jesus Christ and wanting to share the faith with others, believe they must begin by negating everyone in that other person's life, all the things they bought into, kind of start from fresh a blank slate, and then give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not how the apostles were converted or the church was converted as the work of the apostles, that we begin by being a friend to people, knowing how they have already sought to find that creator, and then we build on that. In that sense, all of these festivals and holidays, or might we correct, Jim, what's the word holiday mean? Holy day. All of these holy days are God-given opportunities for you and I to reach out to those whom God has placed in our life. You might think of that as your mission field. To allow grace to build on nature, to help them progress from inadequate views of God and themselves, well, from inadequate views of these holy days, to then experience conversion and the peace that only God can give. That's what we want for our family and friends these holy days, tomorrow at Thanksgiving. Isn't that what you want? So how do you begin? You have to build by grace on nature. You begin where they are right now. Tomorrow is a government-sanctioned festival that we celebrate. It is a God-given opportunity for us to start prepping our mission field, if you want to think of it that way, for the great day of salvation that's ahead, Christmas. Help them experience tomorrow a a blessing that will help them begin to appreciate Advent in the way they never have, so that when Christmas comes, it will be a day like they have never experienced, so that Epiphany means something, and so that they'll be on their knees in Lent and Easter. Yes, because we are all going towards Easter, and It is the joy of Easter that gives all of the rest of this meeting. And also one other holy day that we haven't mentioned that many of our non-Catholics may not know about is it is the last Sunday of the church year, the Feast of Christ the King. And that is such a joyous event. In the scriptures, it's our Lord, our Messiah, is our King, and he is the King of the world, whether the world recognizes it or not. For all these reasons, we've chosen this text from Philippians because it is a beautiful text that prepares us 
for this time as we examine our hearts in relationship to these seasons. It's the perfect text to help us examine our attitudes, for there is one phrase right in the middle, the center of this text, which is crucial to the full understanding of the rest of the text. And the Apostle Paul added this short phrase, two words, on purpose. Without this phrase, the other exhortations that Paul gives, of course, all have great meaning and importance. But with the addition of this simple phrase, we gain the key to making the rest of his exhortations work. In other words, this little phrase makes all the difference, not just to this text, but to our lives, to our walk with Christ, to our experiencing all that he desires to give us, and to experiencing these holidays, excuse me, these holy days. days. (laughs) I've taken a blend there. These holy days so that our witness has meat to it. Mm -hmm. It it can make a difference in our lives and those around us. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Jim and I are looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 this week in our preparation for celebrating (laughs) Thanksgiving. What you find in these verses are essentially five steps for helping believers re-experience the joy that Jesus promised us. Now, Let me make a couple points there, and then we'll move into our discussion. First of all, this letter of, of Philippians is a beautiful letter. It's often been described as the letter of joy because Paul wrote this letter to believers. He's not trying to convince them to believe in Jesus. He's writing to those who already believe in Christ, whose lives have been changed. They're experiencing faith, hope, and love. He thanks them for that. He praises them for that. But he's also preparing them for difficult times ahead. And so the issue here is how to help these believers face difficult times. He also, though, is recognizing that many of those believers may have lost their their joy, their initial excitement of the faith. And sometimes when you're in a community of believers, you don't want other people to know that, so you put it on. You can act joyful. You can act holy, while at the same time struggling within with the questions of why isn't it working? What happened? What did I lose? What have I done wrong? And often maybe it isn't anything you did wrong. It is natural for that first flush of emotional joy, not necessarily the joy Paul's talking about, but the emotional joy. Excitement. The, the excitement. The new newness, the gift of what you've received yes. in Christ. It, it's slow. As you grow, God allows those, those emotions to subside so that you can start growing more roots in him. But sometimes it can become a danger that we start mistaking that that growing and maturity as, what have I done wrong? And we need to, to hold on to that commitment, even though our emotions aren't always there. We think of the, the journey of Jesus himself. After his baptism, and the experience of the voice of his Father and the coming of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, what's the first thing he experiences? Is the desert. 
Yes. And also the first thing, one of the first things you will experience is rejection when you, you are committed to Christ. Yeah. There's the, well, there's the spiritual battle. Yeah. On the one hand, Jesus promised joy and peace. In John 15, verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In John 20, verse 19, in his resurrection appearance to his apostles, he breathes on them and says, Peace be with you. That peace is something we are to experience through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes we lose the joy and the peace that we've received. And sometimes we wonder if we've ever had it because we never seem to feel different. Mm -hmm. Well, as we were preparing for this today, the staff usually prays through the morning prayer in the Magnificat, a wonderful uh, prayer guide that we highly recommend. And we noticed as we were praying that in today's intercession was this particular intercession. For those who have lost the gift of joy in the daily round of life, grant them gladness of heart. It affirms exactly what we're studying about, is that sometimes even the best of us can feel like we've lost the joy of our faith, especially when we're going through difficult times, whether at home, in marriage, in our work, a loss of a friend, a loss of, of things that we... That we uh, uh, you know, appreciate, thought what we couldn't live without, and now they're gone. And then we ask, Lord, what do we do? Well, in this section of Philippians, which is wonderful, I, I though I hate to pull, a, I always hate to pull a, something out of the whole context of the letter because I want to make sure we're interpreting it correctly. But this is a beautiful, beautiful section, and Paul here essentially gives five steps, keys for helping believers reclaim that joy and peace. And with those five things, he then ends it with a promise, and we'll get to that promise towards the end of the show, of course. The first of these key steps is in verse 4, and that is that we are not just asked or invited to, but we are commanded, in verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord. And he repeats it. He, he says, emphasizes it. He says, again, rejoice say, in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Earlier in chapter 3, he had told them to rejoice. And now he reminds them again and does it twice. And that emphasizes the importance that this term, rejoice, is often used by the New Testament writers and is often used, and this is the mystery of it, in connection with suffering. Now, I'm going to read through five verses. Jim, when I'm done, I'll read them through them, let you reflect on that. Okay. But I want you to listen. These are words from Paul and then Peter, in which he emphasizes the need of rejoicing, but listen to the context. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. Through him, through Jesus, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and which we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. But more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in your hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
And in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is totally counter to what the world would tell us is something to rejoice about. The world says, rejoice that everything's going well for you. And our Lord says, rejoice when things aren't going well, because then you are becoming like Christ. By his Spirit and his grace, he is conforming you to his image. And what is the image of Christ? It is the suffering servant up on that cross. And we are part of his body. And if our the head suffered, so we must suffer too. And so when we are suffering, it's time to rejoice, not out of a masochistic sense, but that our Lord has graced us to be able to go through this. He's given us the strength to do it. The glory will come later, but we are to rejoice now. Far too often, there are Christians and Christian traditions that misinterpret the relationship between what Jesus taught and what Paul taught. Because sometimes there's a mystery there. And very often, what happens is that Christian interpreters look primarily to Paul and then interpret Jesus through Paul. Right. And by having a, their own understanding of Paul, they have to sometimes discount what Jesus said. I used to do that. When I was a Presbyterian Calvinist minister, I believed in the sovereignty of God, the depravity of the will, all the basic things that Calvinist Protestants teach. To me, I leaned stronger on Paul. And when Paul basically said they don't have to worry about the law anymore because we live by faith alone, then whenever there was a verse by Jesus that called us to be holy and to to withstand suffering, we sometimes would say, well, that's the way Jesus was teaching before his death and resurrection. But we put a false dichotomy between Paul and Jesus there because, again, um, Paul is teaching, Jesus is teaching. He's fleshing out in people's personal everyday lives what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said in Matthew 5.12, Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. The context here is in the previous verse. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's what Paul's talking about here in Philippians. Exactly. It's almost as if Paul in Philippians is reminding the Philippians of what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, mm -hmm. which is what we've been trying to say for months, and that is, as the church has taught for 2,000 years, is that the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount is the core mm -hmm. to understanding our faith. We rejoice not because our life doesn't have trial, but we rejoice in the midst of that trial because we have Jesus, because we have his grace, because we know that he knows what we're going through. He knows exactly where we are. I, you know, I love 
it cracks me up. The English language <laughs> is sometimes so difficult to use because it's an amalgam of Latin and French and German and Norwegian and all these other languages, these other words that have come in. The prefix re means to do something again, to turn back. So in other words, to relocate. It's to go back, to locate again. To return, it's to turn again. Or to redo is to do something again. So Jim, let me ask you, rejoice how do you joyce again? You have that joy again. <laughs> you have that joy that Jesus gives you by the power of the Spirit. Uh, you've got the French, the original French word here, and I that's why I took German, because I oh. could never read French. <laughs> well, uh, rejoice comes from the old French, rejoie, where joie, in other words, rejoie, means to be glad. So rejoice means to be glad again. And the reason we wanted to point that out is that what's behind the word rejoice is the assumption that you had joy. You're reclaiming it. When Paul is saying, commanding to rejoice in the Lord always, there's a lot in that phrase. He's not just saying be happy, but he's he's calling us to, re, to remember to remember, to recall, to to reestablish all that we've received in Christ. As an act of the will, not necessarily chasing a feeling. You know, he can't you may tell not, us to feel. You can't, yeah, you can't be commanded to feel, but you can be commanded to do. And you you rejoice in the Lord. You may not feel like rejoicing, especially if the lion is coming at you in the arena, but by an act of the will, you express that joy, you rejoice, and hopefully, God willing, the, the feelings will come. But that's not why you're doing it. I mean, a good point there is also that Christ commands us to love God, mm-hmm. commands us to love one another, but you can't command a feeling. Right. Love is an act. So is rejoicing. It is a choice in the midst of trial. In those verses, when Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, he's not saying that he feels happy because they're suffering, or regardless of whether they're suffering or not, or even the fact that he might be suffering, he's just kind of, that's crazy. If you picture somebody who's kind of giddy in the midst of suffering, then they ought to be somewhere where they're being taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an attitude that focuses on God. In the midst of the fire, there is God. And the reason we have that attitude is we're in the midst of the fire, as you put it. But we know that there is an ultimate reality outside and beyond that fire that we are headed towards. And this fire, this tribulation that we are in is not permanent. It's passing. In the midst of whatever you are in, in your life right now, Paul is commanding you not only to rejoice, not only to rejoice always, not only to rejoice again and again and again, but rejoice in the Lord. That's the key. Mm -hmm. It's a choice you make by grace. And you can start right now. You rejoice in the Lord. 
And the promise is that the peace of Christ will come. But the peace of Christ will not come without this. If you want to receive that peace that Christ wants to give you, you begin by choosing to trust in the midst of trial. Well, then he goes on to a second step. Verse 5, let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. So number two, we recognize that we are called to be a witness of forbearance to those around you. And uh, we've got a good quote here from uh, Marius Victorinus about this. You know, be- Because when I first read this, okay, I thought, okay, what's forbearance? What is he calling us to have? And uh, Marius says, forbearance is individual patience that observes due measure without staining beyond its station. When we live among strangers and live in a way commensurate to our lowliness, God will lift us up. It's our patient endurance and knowing where we're at and, and, and being a witness to that to other people. How we live our lives especially in times of trial that you might be having right now, is a witness to our faith. And and here again, Paul is essentially referring back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our forbearance, our patience, our trust in God in the midst of trial is a witness to our love for God, and it points not to our strength, but to God's strength, Mm -hmm. to his faithfulness, because that's what our forbearance is based on. And then he, after this phrase, he has that little phrase, the Lord is at hand. Now, we could spend a long time discussing that, because what we're dealing with here is the, the second coming of Christ, and in those early days of the church, Uh, In most of the New Testament letters, it certainly seemed like they were expecting him to come any day now. And so how do we deal with that 2,000 years later? But this can at least be understood in two ways, and especially as we approach the time of Advent, this is important. Number one, it could be understood in, in terms of the constant expectation of that second coming of Christ, in which all through the New Testament, you and I are exhorted to be ready, because that might come tonight. The Lord is at hand. He's always going to be at hand. Whether it's that, that that great second coming or if you and I went home tonight to be with the Lord, it could come now. Are we ready? But there's a second way that it could be understood. And that is the recognition of Christ's constant presence in our lives. Um, he says in Matthew 25, 40, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. And that is how the Lord is present in our lives, in the people that we meet. How do we treat them? Because as St. Teresa of Calcutta said, all those beggars and the, the dying in the streets, she saw each of them as Jesus. You know, I was thinking tomorrow will be Thanksgiving and we'll have turkey and all the great fixings and people will gather and it's to be a time of thanksgiving but sometimes there can be undertones of complaint or dissatisfaction but we are called to let the people in our lives know our forbearance because the lord is at hand 
In their midst, the Lord is present. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. One of those family members, one of those guests, one of the, the person that we see at the gas station, the Lord is at hand. They need to see the peace and the patience we have in Christ. And these are the people that it takes an act of the will to have forbearance towards. So we choose, number one, to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of struggle. We choose, number two, to be forbearant in grace and to let others recognize that it's not our strength, but it's the Lord. But number three, he then commands us to have no anxiety. He says, have no anxiety about anything. Now, once again, how do you command someone to not be anxious? If you can't command someone to have a feeling, how can you command someone not to have a feeling? Well, because the word anxiety is not primarily referring to a feeling. It is an attitude, an attitude of worry, of focus, of going over and over and over again. And once again, here Paul is referring directly back to the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34, you have that whole section in which Christ says, Do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. It does not mean that we are to ignore the present, to ignore the future, the needs of our family. Oh, I'm not going to be concerned about that. He's rather referring to a choice we make to trust in God the Father through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that God is guiding, knows our life, knows our need, gives us the gift we need to provide and to face the trials that we face in the days ahead. It's basically a matter of focus. You're recognized, you can recognize, yes, there are trials, there are tribulations, there are pressures, but am I focused on those trials, tribulations, and pressures and obsessed by them? That's anxiety. Or am I working through them, concerned about them, but am I focused on Christ knowing that he's the one in control and we're going to get through this? You know, I was experiencing that this morning as I prepared for this program because so many things happening the last week. Here I found myself this morning at 9.30, even though I've been thinking about this program. It was the first time I sat down to do any work on it, literally <laughs> doing any word studies. or, And so the thought crossed my mind that I'm going to be on the air in three hours. And you could a person could be paralyzed by worrying about the fact that I might not get it done. It might not come together. It might not make any sense because you're worrying about, I've only got three hours and two and a half hours and two hours. In the process, you get nothing done. You're paralyzed. He's saying that's not the anxiety that's to fill your life. You're focusing on the wrong thing. Rather, I had to remind myself how faithful God has been in the past mm -hmm. to help us bring it together and that I'm the focus right now on doing the job I'm to do at this moment, not what I might not get done the next three hours. And in your Calvinist days, you thought the days of miracles had ended and they happen every week. <laughs> well, God is good. And so we, we rest on that. Our lives are not to be focused on worrying, but on trusting. And we choose that. We choose to rejoice. We choose to, by grace, be strong in the Lord, forbearance, be patient. And we choose to not be caught up in anxiety. And he moves right on in his fourth step to say that instead of focusing on that anxiety, 
you turn to prayer. He says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And again, Paul draws us back to the Sermon on the Mount. In the middle of the sermon, he teaches on prayer. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And in prayer, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven, and so on. We, and we learned there the prayer, not just as the model, but the most powerful prayer that Christ gives us so that we can turn the anxieties into supplications, into prayer. Paul says, in everything by prayer and supplication. Now, first of all, he doesn't just say in everything by prayer that your request be made known to God, but in everything by prayer and supplication. There's an important use of that word. Yes, deesi is, uh, deese, sorry, is a, the Greek word. It comes from uh, a root word that means to beg to beseech, to request. God wants us to ask him to help. Now, God knows before we ask what we're going to ask, just like uh, it's, uh, Jesus says, but he still wants us to ask. He wants us in that proper attitude. And this word supplication can be translated to request, to earnestly plead, to petition, I've known some people who said, well, I shouldn't, that's presumptuous of me to ask God. Um, well, no, it's not presumptuous when he commands you to do it. It's presumptuous not to. In fact, in this context, one of the first things Paul's inviting us to do is that if you're feeling anxious, turn that to God in prayer. Let go of it. Let God have it. He knows our needs better than we do ourselves. He knows our situation better than we know ourselves. Turn that anxiety into prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known to God. It's not that he doesn't know, but he's waiting for us to trust him. Now, when I read that verse from Philippians, you may have noticed I left out a key <laughs> phrase. When I read it, I said, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. But I left out the key phrase. This verse makes sense without the phrase, but without this phrase, prayer and all of Paul's instructions lose their power. And what is that phrase? With thanksgiving. thanksgiving. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Why is thanksgiving so important to all aspects of our faith? Why is thanksgiving so essential to our receiving the joy and the peace? That's what we're going to talk about when we get back in a moment after a quick break. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. We're looking at Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. We ended up with verse 6, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I had mentioned that when I had previously read that, I had left out the phrase with thanksgiving. Because you see, thanksgiving is essential. I don't want you to miss that phrase. Why is thanksgiving so crucial to not just important to all aspects of our faith, but specifically joy and peace? 
because our faith begins with recognizing that all we have comes from God. There's nothing that we have. Everything from our clothing, our house, our life, the air we breathe and the light we see by, everything comes from God. Even our accomplishments that we've done because of the great gifts and talents we have, those gifts and talents came from God. Right. Even all that money that's piled up in the bank belongs to God. We're stewards. And we are to be thankful. When we are thankful, we know our relationship and we know the source of our our about everything. And once again, thankfulness is not a feeling. Right. It is a choice. You are choosing to recognize the source of everything you have. It's an attitude of life. It's being poor in spirit, really. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When someone is poor in spirit, they are thankful because they know their relationship and where they work in that relationship. What's so key about that is also that that's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. The very place that everything else begins is poverty of spirit. It's a recognition that we would have nothing except for the grace of God. Without this attitude of thanksgiving, All the festivals that we're going to celebrate or have been celebrating, all these holy days lose their meaning. Without the attitude of thanksgiving, joy is lost. And it's hard to rejoice to get it back. Mm -hmm. Why did you lose your attitude of joy? Is it possible that you were not as thankful as you ought to have been? It's hard to have forbearance in the face of trials of life if you don't have that kernel of thanksgiving that puts life in perspective. It's hard to avoid worry and anxiety if you don't also recognize that everything you have is of God anyway. Be thankful for what you have by his grace. And it's hard to pray. It's hard to authentically pray. You can look like you're praying, but it's hard to really pray in your heart and mind if it doesn't begin with a thankfulness to God as the core of that. But with thanksgiving, coupled with choosing to rejoice, choosing to be strong in the Lord, choosing to trust in God rather than worrying, choosing to turn to him in prayer, with thanksgiving, we can receive the peace that he promises. And that's where this passage draws us. After we have rejoiced in all of these wonderful things that he's called us to do, there's this great promise in verse 7. Verse 7, Paul says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there, uh, there are two promises here. First, we experience the peace of God, which is different than that that the world gives. The world does not understand this peace. The world thinks we're masochists. I mean, when the lions are coming down upon us, both figuratively and spirit, uh, and literally, it, we're, that's crazy to be rejoicing when we, it seems there's impending doom. But we see there's a reality beyond our trials. And then there's another promise here. Besides receiving the peace, this peace that we receive, he says, will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Will keep us. 
Jesus said in John 15 that we are to abide in him. In other places, we are to remain in him, to continue in him. And what is being promised here is that this peace of God, in other words, the grace that we receive, will enable us to remain, to stay. That peace will stay in our hearts, in our hearts and our minds. All that we are will remain in Christ Jesus. So how does this begin? It begins with thanksgiving. Because without that thanksgiving, we cannot rejoice, we cannot forbear, we cannot live without anxiety, and we cannot pray. Now one other thing here that I just want to note as we're closing up, this word thanksgiving. You may not know what that is in the Greek, but it is essential for us to understand the celebration of the Mass. Because that word thanksgiving in the Greek is the sum and the core of Catholic Christianity. It is Eucharistias. So the Eucharist, the great thanksgiving, is where we, through Jesus, present in the sacrament, is where we get this power to have this joy. And Paul may not be precisely talking about the Eucharist here, but it dovetails very well with what he's saying, that with the Eucharist and with prayer and supplication, we make our requests known to God. It says in John chapter 6, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. In that verse, he emphasizes that to remain in Jesus, we are given this great gift of the Eucharist. Why, from the earliest days of the church, was the term Eucharist given to this reception of the body and blood? Because for us to receive the body and blood and all the graces, we must begin with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We must appreciate what we're receiving. We must not... In the same way that we must not go through these holidays like they mean nothing and they're just another rite of passage, we must make sure that every time we attend Mass and we celebrate this great feast, that we don't do that without thanksgiving. Because if we do that, we miss the point of all that God has given us. When we gather for the Mass to receive the gift of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, In the Eucharist, we must choose, even in the midst of all the trials of our life, to rejoice, to forbear, to not be caught up with anxiety, to make that experience, that powerful experience of Christ, a time of prayer. Because then what's the promise? What is the promise he gives us? Is that the The peace peace that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But that's what we receive in the Eucharist. That's the key that Paul is reminding us here, that that Eucharistic joy is what sustains us. It begins with thanksgiving. How can we reclaim the meaning, the joy, the peace of this season that's going to be there tomorrow in thanksgiving for ourselves and our family? We must begin by being prayerfully thankful to God for all he's done for us in Christ Jesus. God bless you. Be with you again next Happy Thanksgiving. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, 
visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.